Hello and welcome to The Conversation Weekly. This week, we're hearing from two scientists who are trying to solve the mystery of how consciousness works in our brains. The relationships between different areas of the brain tell us how conscious somebody is. Here, we really focus on treatments that will directly act on consciousness and try to increase its level. And the story of how artificial intelligence and its human helpers completed Beethoven's unfinished 10th symphony. The machine has to learn from a lot of data, and that was challenging because Beethoven had only nine symphonies. I'm Dan Reno in San Francisco. And I'm Gemma Ware in London. You're listening to The Conversation Weekly, the world explained by experts. For as long as philosophers have been, well, philosophizing, they have been wondering what makes humans conscious? What does it mean to be conscious? But for a long time, scientists didn't pay much attention to this question. As recently as the 1980s, the science of consciousness remained a controversial topic, seen as just a bit too out there. That all began to change in the 1990s. Since then, neuroscientists and doctors around the world have discovered some really tantalizing clues about what's going on in the human brain to make us conscious or unconscious as well. So for this episode, I've spoken to two scientists at the very forefront of this search. Let's jump straight in. So, Emmanuel, before we get started, if you could just give me your full name, title, where you work, and generally what you study. Hi, Daniel. Thank you very much for the invitation. My name is Emmanuel Stamatakis. I work in the... Uh, Department of the Anesthesia and the uh, Department of Clinical Neuroscience at the University of Cambridge. Uh, the broad context of my work is uh, brain injury, severe and mild. Uh, specifically, I am very interested in, in brain networks, how uh, they uh, relate to each other in terms of activity. And I'm trying to understand how the brain works in, in healthy people and in uh, brain uh, injured people. And much of your research has focused on the idea of consciousness. Can we define that? Because consciousness, it's kind of a squishy idea, at least to us lay people. Okay, so the way we understand the word consciousness in, in, in everyday uh, speech as such is the means by which I know that something is happening to me and it's not happening to uh, somebody else. Uh, I am conscious. I can relate to the world. I can relate to what's happening around me. Um, and I can, importantly, I can react to, to what is happening around me. My work has a, has a broad clinical perspective. So we reduce, if you want, uh, consciousness to, to two dimensions. One is wakefulness or arousal. So how uh, alert someone is. And uh, the other is awareness. So we sometimes call content of consciousness. So how aware someone is a patient of the environment. Um, to give you um, an example, a healthy controlled person would be fully uh, alert and fully aware. Um, somebody who suffers from what we call a minimally conscious syndrome will have normal uh, wakefulness, so they will wake up and go to sleep. However, they will not be able to interact with their environment, so their awareness will be lower than, lower than usual. And is consciousness a spectrum? Because certainly my plant sitting here on my desk uh, will track the light. It is responding to outside cues, the environment around it. It will 
do things in reaction to other activities. So what differentiates some, I don't know if it's a lower level of consciousness, is this a continuum? You know, where's the difference there? You are going in the direction of what we call the, the, the hard problem of consciousness i.e. how do some organisms like humans have a sense of self and know they, that something that's happened happened to them or happened to uh, other people in contrast to plants. The term um, itself, the higher problem of consciousness, was uh, introduced by Chalmers, the philosopher. Manuel is here referring to David Chalmers, an Australian philosopher. He brought the mind-body problem, what he calls the hard problem of consciousness, back into the realm of mainstream research and debate when he gave a talk on this in the mid-1990s. And basically, he's saying, it's a little pessimistic, and saying that it's very difficult to understand how you go from matter, from uh, oxygen going around in your brain and making it activated or deactivated, all these chemical processes, to the understanding that what is happening here is me having a discussion with you. And I'm aware of the, the questions you're asking and I'm responding to them and I know what, what I'm contributing and what you're contributing. There is a spectrum in all that. We define it in terms of, of disease. Um, in the last uh, 100 years or so, but the definition is extending a little bit. So in terms of uh, human patients, the lower form of consciousness would be somebody who's in what we used to call um, vegetative state, but the term is uh, now unresponsive wakefulness syndrome. So somebody who who cannot communicate at all, then we have minimally conscious people, then we have people who receive anesthetic drugs daily for an operation they have to have in hospitals. Then we have people who are sedated mightily because they're hyperexcited about something or they're upset. So we, we bring their conscious level down. We, we, we numb them a little bit to not experience so much. Then we have people who um, communicate without um, any drugs, any anesthetic drugs, any sedatives on, on a daily-to-day -day basis. Now, in the last 10 years or so, we started extending in, in a different direction where we say that there are stimulants who will increase your consciousness. There are psychedelic drugs who will, I, I hesitate saying this, but will increase your consciousness even more. We know that you're not um, exactly hyper-conscious. You can't hyper-perform when you take an LSD because there are all kinds of hallucinations you have. So we're still to explain um, details in there. But, but that is a continuum that is uh, discussed quite often in, in contemporary literature. So where did this start? Where was this first kind of research into these you know, to understand consciousness. Philosophically, you know, from hundreds and thousands of years, people are trying to, from the ancient Greek philosophers to um, more uh, contemporary philosophers, trying to define what is consciousness, what does it mean? Um, more recently, we tried to measure it, to, to capture it in terms of numbers. The MRI machine used as a tool in the last 20 years has kind of revolutionized this field of research. So um, look into the brain, look at how the brain activates or deactivates. And the same with EEG, actually, electroencephalography, how the brain activates or deactivates and trying to deduce uh, initially this idea that A, 
there is an area in the brain that is responsible for consciousness, but as we as we learn more, uh, is how the relationships between different areas of the brain that tell us how um, conscious somebody is. And here comes complexity as a, an important aspect of this. So how complex are these interactions between different parts of the brain? Um, uh, someone in Milan uh, called Marcello Massimini was the first person in the last 10 years that reintroduced this idea and simplified it and said, the way maybe we can look at brain signals in the same way that we compress files in a computer. So if a file in a computer contains a lot of uh, repetitive information, when you zip it, it becomes really, really small. If it contains a lot of variation, i.e. it is the information is complex, then, then when you zip it, it doesn't reduce too much in size. So that's, that's exactly the algorithm they start using in, in brain uh, patterns from patients who are minimally conscious or people, patients who are in a, in a coma and trying to quantify the compressibility of their brain signals and found out that they were very easily compressed. They were reduced to, to, to very little, to a very small uh, file, if you want. Well, healthy awake people didn't compress as much because their brain waves were more complex. When we try to measure consciousness in the brain, in the scale that I've just described, all the way down from uh, patients in a coma, we saw that complexity in the brain, in brain signals, it's almost non-existent. And then increasingly, as we go to anesthesia, sedation, it, it increases a little bit. Healthy awake people, it increases even more. When you go all the way up to psychedelic drugs like LSD, it, it's, it's the highest we have seen, we have measured. Um, so this is in terms of complexity, which sometimes equates with consciousness. So basically what you're saying is that when someone's unconscious or minimally conscious, there's less communication and information being sent between different parts of the brain than if someone's fully conscious. So Emmanuel, in a piece you recently wrote for The Conversation, you explained something called the default mode network and that this has given scientists some important clues about how consciousness works. Can you explain that? Absolutely. So when we say a network, we mean three, four, five parts of the brain that go up and down in activity together. So in, in the, the assumption is and the inference is that they do something together. If they coactivate, they must do something together. So there were these uh, five, six sets of areas uh, predominantly in the middle part of the brain that seemed to coactivate in between tasks. When people that went into the scanner uh, to do a task stopped doing the task. So in other words, when the task became more unconstrained and people perhaps started thinking about what they're going to do um, when they finish the task or what they're going to eat after they've gone home or what's the shopping going to be. So th that's how the term default mode network appeared. So the idea was that you have a set of brain areas that are active when you don't try to understand what's happening around you and you're, you're, you're thinking, you're ruminating. Now, the people who worked in unconsciousness with patients found that parts of that network were strongly disconnected. And in fact, the amount of disconnection related strongly to how unconscious somebody is. 
So if the front and the back parts of the default mode network were uh, very, very disconnected, then somebody was unconscious completely. If they were mildly connected, somebody was in minimally conscious state. Uh, so there was a very straight linear relationship between connectivity in parts of the default mode network and how conscious you were. So that's how uh, then everybody started studying the default mode network uh, in, in the context of consciousness. Later on, we showed that those relationships actually extended to when somebody uh, receives anesthetic drugs, whatever the anesthetic drug is. I want to get into your own research now. You recently published a paper in the Proceedings of the National Academies of Science, which focused on the role that dopamine plays in consciousness. But I think of dopamine as like a pleasure chemical, something that makes you feel good and acts as a reward system in the brain. So how did you get into studying dopamine's role in consciousness? Yeah, so so this was, I'd like to say, a set of uh, happy coincidences. this work. Uh, first of all, because I don't, work with chemical substances in the brain. But my focus is how different parts of the brain activate and, and coactivate. Um, it, it, one piece of research that I did trying to see how the default mode network changes behavior with anesthesia about 10 years ago produced a result in a part of um, the brain that's called the brainstem, which is basically the connection between uh, your spinal cord and your brain. In, in this brainstem, we have area like the ventral tegmental area. Now, uh, these are very, very tiny areas that produce most of the dopamine that is available in the brain, that is used in the brain. So you were looking at how this ventral tegmental area, the VTA, activates at the same time or in sync with other areas of the brain? Exactly. And we didn't have any hypothesis at this stage. We considered the entire brain. And we didn't just try the VTA. We tried a whole set of areas. We looked at serotonin. We looked at noradrenaline. The, the thing that we found that had um, a massive effect was dopamine from the ventral tegmental area, this tiny, tiny area. When we gave somebody an anesthetic drug, the VTA disconnected from the rest of the brain. They don't co-activate. They don't go up and down in activity together. When we withdrew the anesthetic drug, this connection was re-established. And also, in people with disorders of consciousness, the more unconscious somebody was, the more disconnected their VTA was from the rest of the brain. Okay, so dopamine in this VTA area, they are somehow connected to consciousness. Um, so... What does that mean? Basically, with this group of patients, um, there was almost total darkness in terms of what drug to use. We now have a possible mechanism. So what we can try is give these people dopaminergic drugs or start even clinical trials with dopaminergic drugs and see whether they help or not. Just a note, the dopaminergic drugs Emmanuel is talking about here are any drugs that either mimic dopamine or interact with the dopamine system in some way in the brain. So we need to pursue it and see whether we can ultimately bring people to a degree out of their coma or out of the ability to communicate or and so on and so forth. Emmanuel, so earlier you mentioned that people who are on LSD have an increased level of consciousness, at least by some measures. Is there any research going on to look at the possibility of LSD or other psychedelic drugs as potential ways to 
treat disorders of consciousness or help get people out of comas or anything like that. Our motivation into understanding how complex in the brain changes after people have taken LSD was purely motivated by trying to understand what complexity in the brain means. There is an implication that uh, perhaps if complexity increases so much with LSD, you can try and use it to wake up people who are unconscious. It's, uh, it, I mean, it's really, really early to, to, to make a statement like that. I, I think I need to emphasize that we're not suggesting at this stage that we can give people who are unconscious LSD and wake them up. <laughs> that's, that's research at its very, 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 very early stage. Uh, Emmanuel, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me, Daniel. Thank you. So just to repeat one last time, we are, of course, not advocating that you dose someone in a coma with LSD. No, definitely more research is needed before anyone tries that. It's interesting to think about consciousness as a continuum, though, with a coma on one end and then people on psychedelic drugs at the other. So it makes sense that you'll want to figure out ways to move people around on that continuum. And there are early studies underway that are looking to do just that. I called up a doctor who's studying how drugs, specifically dopamine, influence consciousness. The hope is that it can help people with disorders of consciousness recover faster or better. Okay. Okay, so here we go. Recording. Um, you're sounding good on the mic, so I yep. think we'll be good to go here. Perfect. Just to let you know, I might uh, get a call from someone at the hospital. So if, uh, if the phone rings, I'll let you know. I'll just have to answer, right? All good. Yeah, yeah all good. All good. Uh, before we get into it, first, if you could just give me your full name, title, where you work, what generally you study and do. Sure. So my name is Leandro Sanz. Uh, I'm a medical doctor. I graduated from the University of Geneva in Switzerland, uh, which is my home country. And then I moved to Belgium to start my PhD. And the topic of my PhD is the development of new treatments for patients with disorders of consciousness. Leandro is now based at the University of Liège, home to a big research center on consciousness and comas. The scientists there work to help patients with severe brain injuries. We try to find out uh, which patients are able to perceive their environment and which are not. When doctors like Leandro try to measure the level of consciousness in one of their patients, just like Emmanuel, they're assessing two main things, awareness and arousal. We have this sort of graph, so we put like on the x-axis, we have awareness and on the y-axis arousal, and you can draw the different states of a normal and impaired consciousness on this graph. So for example, if you're in coma, coma is like the worst state that you could be in, so it's really the initial state after a very severe brain injury. So you have low arousal, low awareness. If you're in a coma, you don't open your eyes, you don't react to any stimulation. And then gradually, uh, patients usually they recover first arousal. So they start opening their eyes, but that doesn't mean that they're conscious. It's something very hard uh, to understand, usually for families, because you think in all these movies, the patients, they, they open their eyes and straight they, could, they can talk. So this is really not the real life. Mm. <laughs> At least I've never seen that in my practice. So usually they, they open their eyes and it feels like they're, they're here, but not all of them are able to really uh, respond to simple commands. So it could be squeeze my hand or sometimes just look up, look down. So we test simple things to know if they're here. And sometimes they're just completely paralyzed. So uh, maybe you've heard of the locked-in syndrome. 
This is the very extreme case where you're completely paralyzed, but you're fully conscious inside. It's due to some lesions in the motor system only, but the, the cortex, the cerebral essence of consciousness is still fully preserved. So you're able to understand, to think, to hear, uh, but you cannot move any muscles. So some of these patients are only able to move their eyes, and then we start a communication code with the eyes. So someone comes into your clinic with... Uh, either in a coma or in some sort of one of these disordered states of consciousness. So what are the kinds of interventions that you even think about? Sure. Um, the first thing that is very important to understand is that there is currently no guideline about treating this patient and there is no uniformly accepted treatment or therapy that has proven, let's say, universal efficiency. Uh, most of these therapies are still experimental, which mean that there is an urge to find an efficient treatment. So it's a very active field because if we find a treatment that even has like a slight improvement in all the patients, that would be a huge step forward for the treatment of these patients. So the outcome is a positive change of diagnosis so if you transition from unresponsive to minimally conscious, this is considered as recovery of consciousness. But here we really focus on treatments that will directly act on consciousness and try to increase its level. So for example, here in Belgium, in Liège, we are specialized in pharmacologic clinical trials. So we can include patients in trials where they will receive either an active drug or sometimes a placebo if it's a, a double-blind controlled trial and we see if this drug has an effect on the recovery and the second axis we're focusing on is the electromagnetic brain stimulation mostly a non-invasive brain stimulation which is uh, basically applying either electrical or magnetic current or field on the head of the patient and having modeling of the current to stimulate certain inner regions through the skull, right? And so this is the two fields of expertise here in Liège. And of course, we collaborate with other centers that are specialized in, for example, regenerative therapies, which we don't do here at all, mechanical therapies using ultrasound as well, and uh, sensory therapies for now are mainly based on, on music therapy, auditory therapies. Okay, so let's jump into your research. How do you know what drugs to try on someone? You said you guys are in early randomized clinical trials. You're testing these drugs. What are you looking at? Yeah, it's of course, it's a long process, and uh, you're always building on the work of previous people. We are, what, what's the saying? We are sitting on the shoulders of giants. And there has been evidence that uh, the dopamine network is disrupted when the brain is injured. And so based on this, um, there were initial thoughts about trying dopamine agonists, so drugs binding to dopamine receptors, uh, to treat people with severe brain injury. When you're talking about dopamine agonists, basically you know, the metaphor I've had spinning around in my mind was like a shock to the dopamine system, similar to the way you'd shock a stopped heart with an electrical pulse. The dopamine system is disrupted and you give it a big dose or something and it 
kicks back into normal gear. Is that sort of what we're doing here? So that was the initial idea. And then it's all it's all about dosage. Mm. The brain is really something fragile. And so it needs to have some stability. And so what you said, meaning giving a big dose of dopamine once, uh, we found out that it was not so effective because maybe the brain didn't need so much dopamine at one time. And it may need a more stable infusion of like lower level dopamine. It's all it's all very experimental. So we have a bunch of dopamine agonists because of uh, mostly Parkinson's disease research at hand. So different were tried. And amantadine was first found to have an effect on the recovery of patients with a traumatic brain injury. This was a big placebo-controlled study led by Joe Giacino and uh, Boston in Harvard Medical School. Um, to come directly to my research, we came to apomorphin, which is the molecule that we're now testing in our clinical trial, because it has some similarity with uh, amantadine. It's also a dopamine agonist, uh, but it has aspects that are quite different from amantadine. One is that you can give it in an, a subcutaneous infusion under the patient's skin. So we treat the patient during a month, 12 hours a day with a slow, continuous infusion of uh, apomorphine. Okay, so you've chosen the drug apomorphine, which is already used to treat Parkinson's. So what does your study actually look like? What are you doing? So we have started uh, with a pilot study when we enrolled uh, six patients and we decided to have it open label. So open label means that everyone knows that the patients are receiving the drug. Nobody is receiving a placebo. This is clear. The families know that they're, they're getting the drug. You know that we're getting the drug. And so the idea is, was also to get some preliminary results on the, the efficiency. But it's always uh, to take with a lot of caution because an open label has no control group, right? And we find that the patients who got apomorphine had a quite better course of recovery. But of course, to prove that the effect is only linked to the drug, you need a very robust design provided to you by the randomized controlled trial. So given the very um, promising results from the pilot study, we have now started the next phase, which is the randomized controlled trial. We aim to include 48 patients in the study. So 24 in the control group and 24 in the active uh, apomorphine. So if we see that we need more patients, this may still be adapted. The aim here is to go multi-center. So we are in contact with different centers in Europe. Who are these patients? Are they coming in in comas from car accidents? So the causes for brain injury are, I think the, the leading cause is a traumatic brain injury. So indeed car accidents, it could be uh, different types of accidents. And then we have stroke and brain hemorrhage, as well as cardiac arrest. And so what we do, we see them when they get in the rehab center. So usually they are around one to two months after the brain injury, because first they are in the intensive care for usually a few weeks. So you've moved on from that initial pilot with six patients to the bigger randomized control trial that you're in the middle of. I know it's early, but what have you seen so far? What we have observed in terms of recovery, it depends on each patient, and they have very different profiles. But we feel that we have sort of two different responding profiles. Some patients, we feel that from the moment you put the drug on, 
you really see a difference and they start to be more active more agitated also it's it's not only positive things it's positive to see people more active and more agitated but sometimes they also have side effects such as uh, nausea vomiting so this is one type of profile and these patients then when you stop the treatment they can either keep getting better or some patients when you stop the treatment right away you feel that immediately they, they stop responding and you feel the effect was really like those dependent right we may be looking at two different mechanisms of, of effect here we may have one mechanism which is direct action like dopamine feeding on the brain networks that acts directly on consciousness and the other uh, mechanism could be neural plasticity induced by the drug by the dopamine receptors and this would be long-lasting even after the withdrawal of the agent It's a very it's very emotional to see I've seen last week uh, one of the patients that was treated with the with epimorphin and I had not seen him in several months because he has now been transferred to another centers uh, in Brussels and uh, it's been probably a year since he was treated with epimorphin and he was able to uh, to say hi to me squeeze my hand and say a few words he was still in a wheelchair of course but it was very emotional to see him i'm not saying his recovery is only due to epimorphine but he really had a, a, a very an impressive course of recovery after we started the treatment and it's always a very it's a very nice gratification for our work to to see patients uh going well well leandro um Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Uh, and please do keep us in the loop as kind of your future trials get going. We'd love to keep tabs. Sure. I'd be happy to, to do that. Yeah. Thanks a lot for having me. It was a pleasure as well. These dopamine agonist drugs are super hopeful, but they aren't the only trials that Leandro and his colleagues at Liège are doing. He's also trying another drug called Zolpidem. It's usually used to put people to sleep, but it's shown some remarkable effects at actually temporarily bringing people with disorders of consciousness back for at least a short period of time. They're doing initial work on that drug too, to try and find out how it works and why it only works on some people and not others. That seems to be a key thing here that it really does depend on the patient, right? Totally. And Leandro really put a lot of emphasis on the idea of personalized medicine and unique drug combos and how they might be really important in the area of treating disorders of consciousness. You can check out a story by Emmanuel Stematakis and his colleagues at Cambridge on theconversation.com and we'll keep following this area. So stay tuned. Dan, for our next story, we're shifting from the power and mystery of the human brain to the power of artificial intelligence to mimic its genius. This is a great story about how a team of computer scientists and musicologists teamed up to try and finish Ludwig van Beethoven's unfinished 10th symphony. I read that story as soon as it came out on the Conversation website in what struck me as really interesting is that the AI was composing music, not just producing sound. No, it's composing the actual music so that any orchestra can play it. This is probably one of the most complicated things that AIs ever tried to do in music. And the world premiere of the piece is happening in the German city of Bonn, Beethoven's birthplace. So to find out more, I spoke to the researcher who led the AI side of the project. 
My name is Ahmed El-Gamal. I'm a professor of computer science at uh, Rutgers University. I am the director of the Art and Artificial Intelligence uh, Lab at Rutgers. I have been working on AI for the last 25 years since my undergrad. Okay. First, let's start this story by telling me how it all began. How did you begin this, this journey that we're about to talk about? So around early 2019, Matthias Roder, who's the director of the Kryan Institute in Salzburg, uh, Austria, contacted me and uh, he knew me from a couple of years ago when he saw my work about uh, that is uh, art generated by AI and learned a little bit about how we use AI to generate art. So he contacted me and asked me a straight question, uh, can you complete Beethoven 10th Symphony? And that was the beginning of an amazing journey. Around 1817, Beethoven was commissioned uh, by the Royal Philharmonic Society uh, in London to write two symphonies, the Ninth and Tenth Symphony. So he obviously worked on the Ninth Symphony and came around and it was a big leap in his uh, genius uh, music. has a choral fourth movement. It's the first time that a composer have a choral in a symphony and it's uh, one of the most iconic uh, music pieces. And definitely it's a tremendous leap in Beethoven genius. So he basically started after that, or maybe in the same time, we don't know, writing some musical ideas of what can be uh, part of the 10th symphony. Some bars are more complete than others, so there was uh, about 250 bars of music used by Barry Cooper, a musicologist earlier, in 1988 to complete a first movement of that symphony. But beyond that first movement, the sketches that's left are very, very sparse. It's more like uh, some motifs and some few bars of music here and there. That's basically all what we have. And really the task was really what AI can do with this. We know in, in the past that composer have completed other previous composer works, and that involved a lot of interpretation from you as a composer and also a lot of guessing and a lot of uh, your own subjective decisions. So the question now in the 21st century with advances of AI, uh, what AI can do uh, for this kind of completing unfinished works, especially if there is no much left other than few ideas, a few, few primitive ideas, and that's a challenging work. Okay, so you had these scraps of uh, little phrases, perhaps some notes that were left when Beethoven died. Tell us who else was involved. Yeah, I was fortunate to work with a very amazing team. So we have a um, composer, uh, Walter Warzoa, who's an Austrian uh, composer. And that was basically, he goes beyond composing music in this project to composing the interaction between the AI and the music experts. And we also had Dr. Mark Rotham from the time when he was in Cornell. Uh, he is a computational music expert and he's responsible for really taking the, the sketches and all Beethoven music and transcribe them in a way that can be dealt with with AI. And in the team also we have Dr. Robert Levine from Harvard University, who had, has experience on completing uh, some of the 18th century's work by Mozart and Bach before. So it was kind of our sanity checker uh, to make sure that we are on track uh, musically. Okay, so you were in charge of the AI side of it. Once you guys all got together in a room, how did you then decide what you needed to do with the AI and what you needed to build to make the machine side of the project work? 
Yeah, back in June 2019, the team met for the first time in person. That was in uh, Harvard uh, University, um, in a, one of uh, the rooms in the music library there. We have a piano in the room. We have all these stacks of sketches uh, of Beethoven in the room. And that was uh, the first kind of meeting where we had to face a challenge, understand what AI can do. And uh, myself and the AIT wanted to understand what Beethoven left behind and in general how composer work to write a symphony, how they approach something like that, like uh, step by step. Uh, very useful to understand what Beethoven has to go through from taking these sketches to complete a symphony and then how can you build an AI that really can fill in all these uh, tasks. Okay, so you had to build separate programs. Tell me, how, how does it work in AI terms? So, so the AI has to uh, do several tasks. The first task is how to take a theme or even a motif, which can be uh, uh, one bar of music or even longer, few bars of music, and uh, continue that. Continue that in, obviously, uh, as Beethoven would have continued it, possibly. And, and then, not only that, continue that also in a, a specific musical form. For example, if you want to continue that as a scherzo in music or as a fugue or as a trio. All these are music terms. If you are a classical music um, listener, you will be familiar with that. And then, how can you take that and also harmonize it? Add harmonization to it. It's like two-hand uh, piano playing uh, left and right hands uh, with harmonies. And then once you have segments of music, you have to bridge them. Like, I mean, if you listen to a symphony, you can see a main, a main theme and then transition to another theme. How Beethoven did this transition. Um, and then once you have a full composition for a, for a movement, how Beethoven would orchestrate that? Like, which instrument will play what note when? And which instruments play together and when also to do what effects? All these things are there in actual Beethoven music. Um, the question, can the AI learn that? Can the AI learn all these tasks? Uh, music, fortunately, is very mathematical and very structured. And there must be some statistical pattern in the music notes that really tell us about how Beethoven did that. So all these tasks need to be modeled and learned. Um, we have to tell the AI, here is an example of a motif, and this is how Beethoven have completed or developed it to um, a more sophisticated music. So the AI really had to learn that. And was it one AI or were there multiple bits of AI? One program? Explain how that worked. Uh, multiple programs. One for developing uh, a theme, one for bridging a third one to harmonize the music, and uh, one for orchestration. And each of these ones also had to work with different data sets, different corpuses of music. And when you think about it, it's very similar to how uh, composers learn how to compose. You learn each of these things and listen to many examples of them and how Mozart did it, how Haydn did it, how Beethoven did it. Uh, so they learn the structure and learn um, the examples. And the, how, this is how AI uh, do it as well. OK. And you had a performance in Bonn, didn't you, where you played it to some people? So back in November 2019, and that was actually in uh, Beethoven House Museum, that's uh, the actual birthplace of uh, Beethoven and that was amazing because that's a place where you can see all uh, where he was born and his instruments. So it's it's really an amazing experience. And the task there was to test, can people tell where Beethoven's sketch ends and the AI extrapolation starts? So we had a piano in the room. Uh, Bob Levin started playing the piano and, and people listening to it. And also tried to ask, I mean, what, what do you think about the music? And a few days later, we have the same experience, but this time we have a string quartet playing one piece. 
starting from a sketch and uh, developing into uh, AI-generated music. And there was a room full of uh, journalists and music experts and other people. And that was successful, but that was just the beginning. Did you face any difficulties in teaching the AI how to compose like Beethoven would have done? Definitely, when you talk about machine learning, it's, it's very different from the way human learn. And, and we human are very amazing at learning. We can learn from one example. Right? We can just see something and learn right away. A machine has to have to learn from a lot of, a lot of data. And that was challenging because uh, Beethoven have only nine symphonies, right? So how can we learn from only nine symphonies? That's in the scale of machine learning, that's not possible. So really, we have to um, develop the AI in a way that, um, first, we have to teach the AI in general how to compose music like somebody living in late 17th century. Then we take that uh, AI and did what we call fine-tune it or retrain it now on Beethoven music. And now that the AI can get what Beethoven is about, what kind of genius Beethoven is, how, how Beethoven is different from all composer. You use the word learning and it's machine learning like it was Beethoven or in any other composer learning. So I guess there's some trial and error involved. Were there moments when what you put into the AI came out slightly wrong or not sounding like it was Beethoven? Uh, yeah, definitely. We have a lot of iteration and improvement in this. I mean, you have times when the AI would generate things that are totally boring or, or uh, not exciting. Even in the very early stages of the project, we just wanted to prove the concept of uh, AI continuing music for a long time. So we trained it on big corpus of uh, piano data from all ages. And that was very funny because um, it was just improving the concept. So you can give it a sketch of Beethoven and can it can really continue it in, in today's kind of music, like Bob music and, and things like that. So Beethoven a la 20th century pop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the issues that we faced earlier is that the AI continues the music from some uh, motif or theme. And uh, after a few seconds, the AI start to diverge to something not similar to, at all to the beginning. The way AI generates music is, is very interesting. It's very similar to the way when you type an email now, the email can predict the next word for you. It's this kind of model that try to predict the, the future from, from the past. But if you try to uh, write your email just by using the predicted words, you can realize that after a few uh, words, it becomes nonsense, basically. So it doesn't work in music this way. I mean, how can we tie it always back to the main idea? Because in music, you have this motif in the beginning, and you want to really continue that for a minute or two with that motif in, in mind. And the big leap came when we started using data that are labeled by experts. This is the motif, and this is the development. And once the AI learn what the development is and what is the motif, then it really perfected the task of continuing the music for very long sequences, keeping in mind what is the main idea and not diverging from that. So what's the wider significance of this project um, beyond just finishing the unfinished 10th symphony? What, what larger lessons can we learn here about what creative AI can do? First, I believe that... Uh, you cannot have artificial intelligence without having humans step into the creative territories and, and become creative. Because uh, one important aspect of human intelligence is being creative. Uh, they write music, they write literature, they make art. And my experience in the in the past working with actual artists is amazing. I mean, once you give artists these kind of tools, they become a part of their practice every day. Artists really find ways to use this kind of technology in unimaginable ways. We have to remember two things. First, when it comes to art, art is made by artists. So any art uh, is made by artists. If, you are, if the artist is using machine, the end, the art is the one who framed that, what, what the outcome should be and what is the what to feed the machine and what to curate also out of the outcome. But also something 
we always forget that even the machine is an act of creative human intelligence because whoever developed the AI is human and the AI itself is the ultimate creative product of humans, right? I mean, we try to make the machine creative as us or intelligent as us and that's an act of human creativity. So when you listen to this music, you have to listen, remember that he's the genius of Beethoven writing the sketch and then the AI who also is a human creation doing that. So it's really a big... Uh, yeah, so there's a bit of you in there. <laughs> exactly, exactly. What's behind the machine is human, right? So that's uh, ultimate human creativity. Yeah. Well, thank you, Ahmed, for putting yourself in there. I'm happy now that I can say that I worked with, with Beethoven. So yeah, <laughs> for sure. Thank you so much for explaining uh, your work to us. Thank you very fun. much. Ahmed El-Gamal there at Rutgers University in New Jersey. You can read an article that he's written about the project on The Conversation. The 10th Symphony Project was supported by Deutsche Telekom, so thanks to them for permission to use the musical extracts in this story. To end this episode, we've got some recommended reading from Holly Squire, arts and culture editor at The Conversation in the UK. Hi, I'm Holly Squire. I'm an arts editor for The Conversation based in Brighton in the UK. The first story I've chosen for this week is by Emily Zobel Marshall from Leeds Beckett University, and it marks the start of Black History Month. It tells the long, overlooked story of the black slavery abolitionists who travelled to towns and cities in the UK, lecturing and staging anti-slavery performances and how many of them would go on to become minor celebrities with audiences enthralled by their tales of escape from plantations in the US. I found that one of the most fascinating stories was that of Henry Box Brown, who was born a slave in Richmond, Virginia in 1816. So Brown's ingenious escape involved him paying for a custom-made box to be built that he could squeeze inside, and then he posted himself from Virginia in the south to Philadelphia in the free north. From there, Brown left for the UK and then toured the country performing his escape and reading from Uncle Tom's cabin. The second story that I've chosen for this week celebrates Dolly Parton's Coat of Many Colours album, which has just turned 50, and it explains why it has become such an LGBT anthem. James Barker from Newcastle University looks at how Dolly has supported her LGBT fans and offers readers a deeper insight of her well-known lyrics. It was also just a really fun piece to work on and I haven't been able to stop singing Dolly Parton songs since. That's all from me. Happy reading. Holly Squire there in Brighton. That's it for this week. Thanks to all the academics who've spoken to us for this episode. And thank you to the conversation editors, Miriam Frankel, Megan Clement, Nick Lair and Stephen Kahn, and to Alice Mason for our social media promotion. You can find us on Twitter at PC underscore audio, on Instagram at theconversation.com or email us podcast at theconversation.com. And don't forget, you can sign up for our free daily email. Just click the link in the show notes. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a rating or review wherever podcast apps allow you to. And tell your family, tell your friends, if you enjoyed it, of course. The Conversation Weekly is co-produced by Mend Marijuani and me, Gemma Ware, with sound design by Eloise Stevens. Our theme music is by Nita Sol. And I'm Dan Reno. Thanks so much, as always, for listening. <laughs>